Okay. Um, so the the, uh, the the title of the sermon this morning is relationships in the kingdom, and the in the scripture reading, the the text for the sermon is Matthew uh, chapter seven, verses one through twelve. If you'd like to turn there and follow along. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, When there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for, for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you, then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Well, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew for a number of weeks now. And it is important that we see this as a sermon together as a whole, and that we keep each teaching of Jesus in context of the sermon um, that he is preaching, and we also have to keep in mind the audience of that sermon. So please bear with me for a little while here this morning while I recap where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. Think of it as uh, last time from the Sermon on the Mount, you know, at, at, like on a TV show in the beginning. So I can we can pick up where we left off and you can see where we the context of these verses that we have in front of us here this morning. So first, we need to remember that Jesus is, in fact, teaching, uh, preaching a sermon. He's declaring the gospel of the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus is the promised Messiah and he's the king of the promised kingdom to come, the one that the Jews were looking forward to. But this kingdom and this Messiah and this promised king, are they're not what his audience expected. Jesus begins the sermon with the Beatitudes, declaring the character traits of the citizens of the kingdom and the associated blessings or true happiness that they have. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, so that, because they shall see God. And those who are per persecuted for righteousness' sake are also blessed, for theirs also is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes on to the analogy of salt and light. Citizens of the kingdom are to be salt, having preserving and a flavorful effect in, the, in, in where they find themselves. And citizens are also to let their light shine. Not that they receive glory, but that God their Father may receive glory and honor that he so richly deserves whenever others see their good deeds. God, remember, God receives that glory and honor because the citizens' light that they shine is a reflection of the light of God. Remember that analogy of the moon reflecting the light of the sun. Citizens of the kingdom are the moon, and God is the sun, the source of that light. Next, Jesus declares the kingdom law, and it's not a new law. In fact, he has come, he says, to fulfill the law. the law. Uh, we saw the bad news sandwich. I think I, I, I coined that term during during this series of sermons. Um, Jesus first says in the front end of giving of the kingdom law, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus, he, he gives the law, he gives a proper interpretation of the law. And when he does that, he raises the bar. Remember, he says, if you have anger, or hate in your heart, then you are a murderer at heart. If you lust, then you are an adulterer at heart. He, he, he teaches us not to make oaths to manipulate others, but that we should be honest with people and let our yes be yes and our no be no. When someone wrongs you, Jesus teaches us to turn the other cheek. He teaches to love our enemies, and he points to the example of his father who sent his son to die in the place of his enemies. No greater love is there of that than that. And then we come to the other end of the sandwich at the end when Jesus is done declaring the law of his kingdom. He says this in Matthew uh, chapter 5 verse 48 you therefore must be perfect as your father is perfect next Jesus takes full aim at the Pharisees as he calls out religious hypocrisy the Pharisees who are practicing righteousness out in the open to be seen by others praying in public to be seen by others disfiguring their faces while fasting to be seen by others these were all regular practices of the Pharisees. And Jesus is saying, don't be like them, seeking praises of men and not of God. Jesus calls for faith and practice to be genuine, declaring that there is great reward from the Father for genuine faith and practice. We see that Jesus is on an absolute collision course. This is probably the third or fourth time I'm saying this with the Pharisees 
the religious leaders of Israel. And we are going to see that continue to play out. In fact, we're going to see Jesus take full aim at them this morning as he teaches on not judging others. So we come to our text now. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is the often used, judge not, lest ye be judged card. When Christians call out sin in this world, people get offended. These people are not interested in Christianity and know very little about the Bible, but they know this scripture, and they use it as a club to silence any criticism of sin. They want to remain in the darkness. But sadly, this also happens in the visible church as well. There are many professors of faith in Christ who, when confronted with obvious sin in their life, attempt to use these verses as a shield to avoid dealing with that sin. One time I heard Paul Washer in a sermon say this, People tell me, judge not, lest ye be judged. I always tell them, twist not scripture, lest ye be like Satan. I agree with Paul Washer. People who say and use this scripture in this manner are twisting scripture. To understand what Jesus is saying, we must take the scripture in its immediate context here and in the context of the entirety of scripture. As Pastor Mike has often says to us, scripture interprets scripture. And we, we need to take that into account. Which brings me to one of the first re- or one of our readings from this morning from First Corinthians. We see Paul confronting the church in Corinth over sexual immorality that was taking place. And he calls the church in Corinth to account because they weren't dealing with that sin. In fact, they were boasting about it in some manner. And Paul goes on to say in verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is, not the, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So it's clear from Scripture, again, Scripture interpreting Scripture, that discernment and judgment at some level was required for accountability in the church. And in the new covenant people of God, in fact, that last sentence, purge the evil person from among you, is a direct quote from at least seven places in the book of Deuteronomy, plugged for Wednesday night, Deuteronomy study, um, in which uh, God, through Moses, is commanding Israel, the old covenant people of God, to purge evil from their midst. We have the same sort of idea in the people of God and the importance of dealing with sin at some level uh, in the church today. Some people will say, when, when confronted with this scripture, they'll say this. They'll say, well, that's Paul. I don't like Paul. That is why I'm a red-letter Christian. I only follow the words of Jesus. To which I say, oh, really? Well, 
I think that there may be some red letters in your Bible on this topic. We need, in fact, we need only go a little further in our text here this morning when Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw pearls before pigs to see that some judgment is required. How does one decide what is holy? How, how does one decide what is valuable like pearls? And, and, and beyond that, how does one decide who are dogs and who are pigs? Judgment is required. Discernment is required. Also, later in Matthew, we will see Jesus establish a process for dealing with sin in which Christians are held accountable within the church. Anyone know what text I might be talking about? It's a pretty famous uh, section of scripture. And we're not in person, so I can't, I'm not taking hands or, um, uh, you know, uh, answers from the audience here this morning. But uh, um, it is Matthew, in, in fact, it's Matthew 18. Um, and it is, it is known by many Christians as the Matthew 18 principle, right? Um, again, how can we confront sin without ex- exercising some judgment that there is right and wrong and that it needs to be dealt with in the church? Another thing to keep in mind, and this is the reason why Paul Washer probably often had people saying to him, judge not lest ye be judged, um, is because the the type of preaching that he does relative to preaching of righteousness. Um, we see this too. Um, the, you know, the preaching of righteousness will always be perceived as being judgmental, right? But we are called as preachers of the gospel to preach righteousness, to preach law so that people can see their need for a savior. And we have many examples um, in the Bible and throughout church history of, of those being mistreated um, and the the offense that, that the unregenerate people take um, to, to the preaching of righteousness. Just just remember what happened to, to John the Baptist, um, you know, when Herod imprisoned him uh, because John the Baptist was preaching righteousness. George Whitfield is another example of this. Um, it is it is reliably report, uh, recorded in history that he often was pelted with rotten fruit and animal feces as he pre- did open-air preaching of the gospel in many places. People are always, unregenerate people are always going to see uh, preaching of righteousness as, as being judgmental. So what does Jesus have in view if he, when, when he is teaching us not to judge? He says, judge not. Well, we must consider the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just laid down the kingdom law, He call, calling out the, the Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy and contrasting their practices with how citizens of the kingdom should act. And he finishes, if you remember last time that Pastor Steve preached from Matthew, um, the, the, this idea of, well, he, he in fact commands citizens of the kingdom to, to not worry. I, you know, I can see Jesus' audience at this point not looking at themselves, but looking around at others. And, and Jesus knows his audience better than any preacher ever has. So Jesus goes on now uh, to, 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 to kind of correct people 
so that they don't go off the path here because it is human nature whenever whenever people hear a standard put in place they do not first look at themselves but they first look at those around them and judge those people by their by the standard not themselves And I think that that's what was happening here, and that's why Jesus gives us this teaching on not passing judgment on one another. We also see that early in church history that this was this took root um, from from the weekly one another this morning um, from Romans uh, chapter fourteen, and the verse uh, for the weekly one another was, I believe, like verse. Uh, 13, but the context was in the other reading in verses 1 through 4, where there were some quarrels about what the dietary restrictions, if, if any, there should be um, within the church and with, within the people of God, as this was a very important thing uh, in the Old Covenant and, and in the nation of Israel, and according to the Mosaic Law. And, you know, Paul is essentially coming down to say, look, we're not to pass judgment on one another um, in this regard. Um, this, this is not important in the, in the new covenant, and we ought not pass judgment uh, on one another. And in fact, he, he, he talks about the fact that um, we're not to, to, to judge in this way another servant. And in, the, in, in, the, in verse 4, he says this, it is... It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And there's a encouraging word here. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's, that's an encouraging word for us here this morning. But we see that this happened early in the church, um, and that judging others became a problem. So what is Jesus prohibiting when he says, judge not? Well, John Calvin, he, he describes it as, as this. He describes it as depraved eagerness for biting, censuring, and slandering. And I just wanted to lay out some, some examples. I think it's, it, you know, it's, it's better that way for us to, to kind of understand uh, what Jesus has in mind here. And so some t- telltale signs uh, that one may be in a danger zone of having a judgmental spirit and disobeying Jesus' command to not judge others. And the first, the first telltale sign is motivation. What is your motivation for looking at the sin of another, of your brother or sister? Are you curious about another's life uh, and, and you want to pry into that life in the name of rooting out sin? That, that, that could be a problem. I think that's one of the things that Jesus has in mind here. Do you look for and find and then examine faults in others to feel better about yourself? This is a wrong motivation, right? You, you may have a judgmental spirit if this is what you do. Do you have a need to control other people and to be domineering over them? Again, a sign of a judgmental spirit. And, and do you fix it? You find yourself fixated on small faults in others. This, this may be a sign that you are in, a, in the danger zone of having a judgmental spirit. 
And the other aspect I believe that Jesus has in mind here is supposing others to be hypocrites when their actions can be interpreted as good, doubting the intent based on our judgmental assessment of unknown motives. Only God knows the heart of man. We should not presume to know. And if, we, if we're doing that, if we find ourselves presuming to know the motivation for people's actions, I believe we're in a very dark path. And we need to get ourselves off of that path and repent and turn around and, and, and look at what our true motivation is in, in rooting out sin. Finally, I think it's very important that we not pass judgment on the ultimate state of another's soul. As if we are editors of the Lamb's Book of Life, because we surely are not. Now, we're not to do these things. We're not to, to judge in this way for very good reason. One of those reasons, this was a reason that I, I read from Spurgeon, and it just rung so true to me. Now is not the time for final judgment. This is a time for gospel ministry. We need to keep that in mind. And we are not the ultimate judge. And we should not presume to take the place of Christ our King, the one who will return to judge the living and the dead. One other thing to note about this first part of the passage is that um, in judging others, um, we will be judged in the, in, in the same way and with the same measure. Now, I think there's two ways in this is, ways this is manifested. And I think this is the first way is it, it happening in this life. You know, those who have a judgmental spirit and are judgmental of others are likely to be are not likely to be treated charitably by others when they, they are found at fault. Um, that is so true. It happens all the time. Um, you, when you, whenever you are judgmental and uncharitable to others, you make many enemies. And, uh, and oftentimes that comes back to haunt you in this life. But even if you escape that consequence in this life, I think the final judgment also comes into play here. I think Jesus has this in mind. Um, this sin of, of having a judgmental spirit against others will, will affect how God judges those who are not found to be in Christ. And I, I, I think of it as a multiplier in a bad way. Um, but Jesus did not stop with these first verses. He did not stop as the scoffer stops at judge not lest ye be judged. He goes on to talk about actions that we should take when we find sin in our midst. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly, you'll see clearly to, to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus, of course, is calling out, and I just 
talked earlier about how we shouldn't presume that others are hypocrites. Well, here's Jesus um, calling calling the person who's judging other a hypocrite. Well, first of all, Jesus actually can rightly see the intention of men's hearts, so he can he can do that, and he is in fact perfect. We are not. Um, but Jesus he uses uh, the sense of sight in teaching about judging others. And we're going to see this again. And again, later in Matthew, in Matthew 14, and in two, at least two places in Matthew 23, when Jesus talks about the Pharisees, what does he call the Pharisees? He calls them blind guides. And where do blind guides lead people? Blind guides lead people into pits. And this, this is the epitome of the Pharisees, um, which Jesus Jesus definitely calling out in these scriptures that we're reading here this morning and studying here this morning. So we cannot clearly see the sin in our brother or sister's life until we deal with the sin in our own lives. So when we see sin in in another, what should be our first step in dealing with that sin? We should look at our own life to see if that sin is in our life, right? Right? That's what Jesus is saying here. Oh, that we would just listen to what Jesus says in the church. How quickly would the church grow in holiness if every time we saw another sin, we examined ourselves and dealt with the sin in our own lives first. Now, having examined ourselves, including questioning our motives, as I talked about earlier, and dealing with our own sin, then we can move on to condemn our brother or sister. No, 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 that's not what Jesus says at all. We are, in fact, not in a position at that point to condemn anybody. But we are freed up to help our brother or sister remove the sin from their life. We see this in the scripture from Galatians this morning, right? Um, Paul, that same Paul who had the harsh words in 1 Corinthians, uh, talks about those among us who are spiritual, that we should restore anyone caught in, in transgression with a spirit of gentleness, that we ought to keep watch on ourselves lest we also be tempted. And in so doing this, we fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is to love one another. So the purpose of correction and reproof is to help. It's to win a brother back. It is restorative in nature. We we deal with the sin in our own lives so that we can clearly see to help others see the sin in their lives. So now we move on to verse 6. Verse 6, Jesus says this, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What does this mean? Who, who are the dogs and, and what is holy and, and what are the pearls and, 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 and who are the pigs? Well, I believe that which is holy and the pearls represent truth and grace that is imparted to one who receives reproof or correction. This is inclusive of the gospel message received for the first time or as a reminder of the gospel for those who are already Christians who have been found at fault or found in sin. We need 
to interpret this passage in context here. And the context is judging correctly and offering reproof, as we have seen in the previous verses. And who are the dogs and who are the pigs? Well, recently, two, two nights ago, I guess, I uh, went to the mall and we had to get a new calendar for my, for my door here in the, in the kitchen. And um, the previous calendar that we had had, had cute uh, puppy dogs on it. And uh, in, in fact, the new calendar that we got has cute baby pigs. Well, this is not what Jesus had in mind. And in fact, this is not how Jesus' audience would have thought of dogs and pigs as cute and lovable pets, right? Dogs at that time were almost always strays and they ran around in packs attacking people. Um, you think of them as a, as a marauding gang and people feared them. They were seen as dirty and unholy and driven away any time that they would be seen in public. The pigs, as you know, were an unclean animal in relation to the Mosaic Code. So these references, when applied to people, represent outsiders, people outside the nation of Israel. Well, how do we discern who the dogs and pigs are in our context? I would say that they're those outside the kingdom of heaven, wicked scoffers who are clearly in sin, but not interested in anyone pointing it out to them. In fact, they're like the people I mentioned earlier who play the judge not lest ye be judged card. This can include non-believers and, and, those who, and also those who have a profession of faith in Christ, but whose actions do not line up with that profession. So why, why is it foolish to place pearls before swine? It's because the swine, they, they, the pigs, they can't see the value in the pearls. And they trample them. It's a waste. The, the, well, that is what is valuable is destroyed. And it's a wasted effort. I can't help but to think that Jesus had the proverb that we read earlier in mind here. Proverb 9, verses 7 through 8. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove, reprove a wise man, and he will love you. So what does this mean for us today in the church? Well, number one, I think for non-believing scoffers, we should give them the law as much as we can um, until they show signs of conviction of sin. We shouldn't waste the pearls of the gospel on them lest that effort be wasted and lest we incur wrath uh, on ourselves uh, that, that we need not have. We ought to be wise in, in that manner. But we should always be ready with the gospel message when we see those signs of conviction. I think also it's a very foolish thing for us uh, to, to try to attempt to do uh, uh, behavior modification for, for those who are, who, who are not believers, who don't have faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's, that's not the gospel message, and we leave them no better off than what they were before. Number two. I think inside the visible church, we have the process 
for conf- confronting sin that Jesus establishes in Matthew 18. We are to approach someone in sin individ- individually and, and confront them with their sin. If they will not listen to us, we take a witness with us. If they will not listen to two, then they are to be taken before the whole church. And then if they will not listen to the church, they are to be treated as what? As it's, the text says in Matthew 18, Jesus says, treat them as Gentiles or tax collectors. So we are to treat them at that point as a non-believer and they are to be put outside the church. This is the process of church discipline. So, based on Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and the con- uh, in, in, in the context of, of Scripture and the, as a whole, in light of the New Covenant, how are we to confront sin in our midst? Very carefully. With a great deal of care, prayer, discernment, and prayer. Yeah, I said prayer twice. All of them are required to rightly deal with sin in our midst. And it can seem very complicated. But Jesus does give us a summary statement at the end of this section of the Sermon on the Mount that I believe will simplify the matter for us. And that is in verse 7. It is the golden rule. Verse 7 says this. Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do, to you do also to them for this is the law and the prophets so Jesus gives us a simple principle in how we are to live with one another it is in line with Jesus' answer to the question what is the greatest commandment we're going to see that in Matthew 22 Jesus gives his answer he says love God and love neighbor in fact he says to love your neighbor as you love yourself This is essentially the golden rule from the Sermon on the Mount. But human nature is what? It's to treat others how they treat you. Or even worse than that, it is to treat others how you think they might treat you. And in human religion and in philosophies, we see maybe a similar teaching to the golden rule. In fact, Confucius Uh, The renowned Chinese teacher over 2,500 years ago taught this. He taught, what you do not want done to you, do not do to others. This is sort of like a negative almost of the form of the golden rule. And and in many ways, I think it's a prevailing uh, philosophy in our our culture today. Um, Essentially, it's this, to do no harm to others. But the golden rule is far superior to this philosophy. It requires us to do something. It is active. It is not a live and let live philosophy. We show that we love our neighbor by what we do for our neighbor. The difference between these philosophies is clearly seen in the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke uh, chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. We all know this parable, right? A man, likely a Jew, was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's attacked along the way by robbers and left for dead. Then a priest and a Levite, one after the other, both of which were countrymen of the man left for dead, passed him by without offering aid. They did him no harm, but 
did not lift a finger to help him. Then a Samaritan, who would have been hated by the Jews, came along and stopped to help the man. He had compassion on him. He bound up his wounds, and he got him long-term lodging and care with the promise that he would come back and pay whatever was needed to nurse the man back to health. In telling this parable, Jesus got the Pharisee who asked him the question, who is my neighbor, to admit that the Samaritan was the neighbor to the Jew. The Samaritan practiced the golden rule by loving his neighbor as he loved himself, treating others as he would like to be treated. So the standard for how we who are in the kingdom of God should relate to one another is the golden rule. We're to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. This will absolutely transform how we approach the earlier question of judging others and the appropriate actions that we take to deal with sins that we see in our brothers and sisters. You probably noticed that I skipped a part of our text here this morning. I skipped verses 7 through 11. I'll read them now. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which of you... If his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I skipped this passage until now because I wanted to finish with this teaching that Jesus gives us on prayer. Jesus, in giving us the golden rule as a summary statement of this section of Scripture of the Sermon on the Mount, he, 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 he takes how we are to be in relation to one another, um, which seems like a very complicated thing, right? It, 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 and to be able to, to, to discern what it is we should do in each and every situation, how we are to deal with sin and yet not be judgmental of one another. He gives us a simple rule to live by in that we are to treat others as we'd like to be treated in that context of dealing with sin. So it's simple. He gives us a simple principle, and I like that. However, even though it may be simple, it's not easy to carry out. In fact, it is impossible for man in his sinful state to carry it out. We first must be given a new nature by the Holy Spirit in regeneration where our hearts of stone are removed and we are given hearts of flesh, enabling us to place our faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Our nature is changed because the deposit that guarantees our inheritance, the Holy Spirit resides in us. Jesus, in fact, refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper that leads us into all truth. So Jesus here speaks more help that we can have in requesting it from God in prayer. And there's a tenderness that we see 
in this teaching, right? This tenderness of the idea of asking, of seeking, and of knocking. And I'm amazed, and I'm sure that Jesus' audience at the Sermon on the Mount were, must have been amazed to see the access that Jesus is saying that we have to Father, uh, God the Father. It, it's, it's an amazing thing. And Jesus gives us this example of earthly fathers. And, you know, earthly fathers know, know how to give good gifts to their children, right? They, you know, you, you're not going to, if your child asks you for, for a loaf of bread to eat, you don't give them a stone if, if you're, if you're a, a halfway decent parent, right? And if they want some fish, you don't, you don't give them a serpent that would, would hurt them. Right? You, you, know, you know how to give good gifts to your children. And, and Jesus, he does this compare and contrast um, in which, and this is often, often quoted as an example of how uh, all, all, all men are born in sin and, and all men are evil. Jesus says, you, you who are evil, if you know how to give these good gifts, how much more uh, will God your Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Right? It's, it's interesting. You have this principle that we, you know, that we see uh, about the nature of man um, as a given, as, 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 as assumed by Jesus here in his teaching, and to show us how, how much more um, access we have to good gifts from our Father who is in heaven. Um, I, th- I think, again, that it is very important for us to acknowledge the context of this teaching on prayer. Jesus is not only telling us to ask for for good gifts in, the, in terms of health and in, in terms of our material needs that we have or situations that we that we may we be concerned for the safety of others in, but he's also telling us that we need to seek him for our spiritual needs as well. Jesus is offering help so that we can live life in his kingdom. He's offering help so that we can we are able to exhibit the character traits of citizens of the kingdom, so that we can obey his commands, so that we can avoid the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, so that we can store up for ourselves treasure in heaven instead of seeking that which perishes here on earth, so that we don't worry about our needs, knowing that our Father in heaven will provide everything that we need. So that we can deal with sin in our midst, rightly judging ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ so that those caught in sin can be restored with a spirit of kindness and gentleness. All we have to do is ask and it will be given what we need. Our Father in Heaven is perfect and He will perfectly fulfill those needs that we have. And in our asking, we ought to have the promises of God in mind. There are many promises that God gives his people in the New Covenant. We can see them all over the New Testament. We ought to know what they are. How do we know what they are? We, We know by reading and studying our Bibles, right? I hope you're all uh, going through your your Bible reading plan and you know and, and, and keeping up with that and you know uh, catching up if you, if you can it's important that we read the Bible so that we know God and we know the promises that He has for His people. 
And knowing these promises, we ought to take those promises to God in prayer when we ask, when we seek, when we knock. I can't help but to think that we have an inexhaustible resource available to us that we have, we have left virtually 